Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here's a double shot from our featured artist today, Karen Oliver. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs.
from her brand new release and uh, we got Karen on the line right now. Hey Karen, how are you? 
I'm doing just fine, thanks. Now, uh, this is the first time you've been on our show, and we always like to start things off by kind of looking at who you are, not only as a, uh, an artist, but as a person. And the best way to do that is to look at your journey, how you got to where you are today. So give us the story of Karen Oliver. Oh, my. Uh, well, I was born in uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, we uh, emigrated to Maryland when I was about three. <laughs> And I grew up just over the just over the DC line, and then uh, spent you know a big chunk of my life in Maryland, and then uh, met a met a Frenchman who uh, moved me off to New York City. We lived there for about six years, where I got involved in a very nice collective of female musicians, and then uh, from there we were in North Carolina for about three years, and. Uh, as of three years ago in August, we have been living in Texas. Okay. You know, I find it odd that a Frenchman would move you to New York. How did that happen? <laughs> well, he was already there when I met him. Um, so he was, yeah, he was living in Manhattan and I was uh, up just visiting a friend and we, we met at a Christmas party in Brooklyn. Okay. Well, I could see that. Okay. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the new release. Now, what was the inspiration that that drove this release into inception? Well, I mean, I, I had a lot of songs written and the pandemic hit and I was, you know, home uh, like all of us doing, you know, just about nothing for a while. But I had worked on a single with one of my friends from New York that I'm in this sort of collective with. And um, we had a really great time working on the single together. And so we decided to just try another song, you know, um, of a different kind. And it, it sort of evolved from there. And we just had such a wonderful time working together that we decided to go ahead and do an entire album um, pretty much remotely because I was stuck in Texas and she was stuck in Brooklyn and um, and so it was, you know, initially it was just kind of something to, to start doing but as we moved further into the process I had been thinking a lot about the fact that a lot of my women musician friends were leaving the business because they just couldn't get enough work to make ends meet and people just don't seem to think about hiring a woman when they need an instrument and i was just kind of decided that i had been part of the problem because i had worked with almost all men for all of my other albums and i just decided that i wasn't going to do it that way this time and we ended up using nothing but female talent on this record Okay. All right. Now, um, let's talk about your process as a songwriter, because every songwriter has their way of tapping into the muse, whether it's they write every day or they wait for inspiration or they collaborate. Um, when you sit down to get, begin that process of writing, what is your mechanism that helps you tap into the muse? Uh, well, I, I typically I'm not sitting down. That's part of it. <laughs> I um, 
I, I generally start writing with without an instrument in my hand so I can be out walking, I can be going for a run, I can be driving, which is handy because I do a lot of that. Um, and I sometimes I get very, very lucky and a melody just sort of out of nowhere presents itself and I will just randomly sing nonsense to that until some piece of it informs me on a lyrical idea and then it, it forms from there but it almost invariably starts with a a, a melody um without ever having a guitar in my hands okay well that's interesting now um a lot of songwriters have embraced some of the tools that technology has brought our way whether it's the cell phone for capturing ideas or a home recording studio what are some of the tools you have found to be indispensable to you as a writer well the, the voice memo feature on the phone is definitely handy particularly if i'm i'm driving because i can't exactly write anything down but if i pull over really quickly and just open that thing i can sing into it and and, and then continue on and come back to it later um as far as writing that's really the only technology i use after that it's really um you know pen and paper and the and, the, and an instrument in my hands once i start forming the arrangement um but obviously i use use the voice memo function not just for jotting down ideas but also for sharing demos with you know the woman i produced the album with or with somebody else um i haven't done a lot of collaborating so technology hasn't been necessary for that as far as writing um and um that's kind of you know, yeah and i i mean i use record recording software on my computer when i'm ready to make a demo but not for the writing process okay now um one of the the big buzzwords in the industry today is artificial intelligence, and it's really kind of been brought to the forefront um, because of the SAG after strike, and you know they 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 were concerned about uh, people um, you know digitizing extras and using their image without you know compensation, things like that. And in the music industry, I mean, you've got people that are recreating the Beatles or recreating. Um, um, you know, um, classic artists that have gone. But for the songwriter, there are tools out there utilizing AI that help you write lyrics, melodies, chord progressions, uh, even beats and whatever. Where do you think artificial intelligence is going to take the music industry as we move forward? Oh, my. Um, you know, I... I don't know. I mean, I would hope that we would find a way that it would become just another tool like every other, you know, innovation that has come along in music. Um, but AI is particularly scary because it does have the, the ability to sort of replace human creativity. So far, it's not very good at it. <laughs> so so that, that's been handy. Uh, <laughs> but if it gets better it's going to start to become a little more difficult to tell the difference um but uh, it's it's tough to know um i have i have some very big concerns about using ai for the actual creation process now using it for recording purposes and production i don't necessarily see a problem with it unless of course you're replacing musicians 
um, that I have a problem with because then you're just using something lesser to make something cheaper. Well, you know, I, I'm of a certain age that I remember, uh, and I'm dating myself here, um, I remember when the drum machine first came on the scene, uh, and everybody was in an uproar over how this drum machine is going to uh, suck the life out of the music that we know. Uh, It's going to destroy the music industry. And then when MIDI came out, oh my God, (laughs) it was all hell broke loose, especially on like the Broadway pit musicians and the uh, in the musicians union about how they're going to take away jobs from musicians because you didn't need musicians anymore because you know you had to you know you can program them into a computer and then they could just play it back through a synthesizer or a sampler and you know now they're everyday tools in our tool bag um, yes. Even Ed Sheeran admitted on Swedish radio when he did an interview that he utilizes some of these AI um, lyric tools in order to be idea generators. Uh, If you take some of these tools and you kind of spit out whatever it is they spit out, there are gems within the coal that you can extract and use as inspiration. And, you know, we as songwriters, we're constantly looking for inspiration, whether it's in uh, conversations that we overhear in a restaurant or a meme we may see on, uh, on the Internet or whatever. So finding inspiration through an AI generator is not that far-fetched as long as you inject that human feel, that human connection within your lyrics and use it as an inspiration to move forward. Um, Right. You know, that's where I see, I think, you know, and I think you had a good point. It's okay if it turns into a tool. And just like the drum machine, just like MIDI are now tools. um, Right. You know, and they had their time too, where they were uh, abused during the disco era in, in you know the mid seventies, late seventies, where you had producers producing, you know, music, and even today, in some of the rap artists that you know create beats, you know, it, they don't necessarily have to be musicians; they just need to be able to take a finger and hit a pad. Um, but it's still music. It's still that human connection that is creating it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, no, I absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, if it's, you know, and as far as writing, I suppose, you know, if it's if it's no more involved in your process than like an online thesaurus. Right. You know, then 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 maybe it's not so bad as long as somebody's not literally just taking the thing whole cloth and and using it um and like i said i don't think you can right now without it being obvious because it just isn't terribly good um but as it gets better it's going to become a little fuzzier yeah it it will definitely become um how can i put it um it will become hard to distinguish as we move to the future. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's here. It's going to mm-hmm. get better. 
and it is going to affect our lives in a whole wide variety of ways. And, you know, it's just a matter of how we utilize these as tools as we move forward, you know? Oh, absolutely. I know. I mean, apparently there is one um, rather large international song contest that even has in its rules now that you are allowed to use AI in the writing of your song that you're submitting for the contest. And I know I've got several friends who are very much offended by that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Um, it did. And and like I said, I have mixed feelings. It depends on how you're using it. Right. It depends on how you're using it. You know, uh, the cream will always come to the top, you know, no matter how you slice it. Now, um, you know, I think as songwriters, one of the hardest things to do is to put the pen down, to stop the writing process and allow the song to move from the writing phase into the production phase. And of course, it always evolves. It evolves in the studio, It even evolves after you record it when you take it on the road. But you have to get to that point where you move it into that next phase and you give it to the producer, the musicians, and you kind of allow them to put their fingerprints on it. What is your quantifier that helps you determine when a song is ready to move to its next phase of life? Well, I mean, I guess on some just sort of emotional level, uh, I I kind of know when I feel satisfied. Um, but and from a from a just you know sort of like literary perspective, it. If you've got a beginning, a middle, and an end, the story is there, it's complete, it's interesting, you've musically taken it somewhere interesting, you know, um, then I then I think it's fairly safe to move on to the next step. But like you said, things do change. Um, I've never had one change dramatically on me after having recorded it, but I have had them change. Um, just little things where all of a sudden, like mid-performance you suddenly realize that if you change just a couple of words the whole thing just works better <laughs> yep. and then from there on you perform it that way even though it's not the way you recorded it um, but sometimes it just never occurs to you until much later so All right. it is it is what it is and I give the songs permission to change whenever they want to but at some point yes of course you have to start producing them so All right. Well, let's talk about that process, you know, because when you write a song, that's kind of half the battle. The other half is bringing it into the studio and breathing life into it with the arrangement, the orchestration, the performance. And you give it its its vibe, its feel, its its um, its humanity, so to speak. Um, When you get in that environment of the studio, what is the process that you use to kind of capture the sound you're looking for? Right. Well, that's, you know, that has changed probably dramatically from record to record. Um, I made a, a couple of albums in Nashville where that process moved very, very quickly. And I didn't have a lot of control over it. Not that I wasn't happy with it because the musicians who played on those records are stellar and they did a great job and I was thrilled. But... Um, I made another album in North Carolina where we 
did a lot of pre-production and we sat down and we talked about it and we discussed what we wanted to use. Not that you could never change it midstream, but for the most part, we had very clear ideas about what instrumentation was going to be used, what the arrangement was going to be before we started. Um, This last album, because we did all of it pretty much remotely and because we took a lot more time to do that, partly because we did it remotely, we had to do just one piece at a time. Um, But that allowed us the space to decide as we went. And so we get the basic tracks done i'd send in my my guitar my acoustic guitar and my vocal and sometimes an electric guitar track on the on the songs that i do play electric on um and then she uh my 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 producer Catherine Essel would send it off to the the bass player and the drummer and get those things done and then sometimes we would even change what i had done originally on the guitar and i just re-record it so it you know based on what what if they had done we would make other choices and sometimes she would even make um arrangement suggestions based on what i had done and we would go back and change that um so we took an inordinate amount of time more so than i would like to do next time around but we had the time because nobody was doing anything anyway so we just decided to take the luxury of time um and and really consider these things as they grew which is not how you normally do it because usually you've got a little bit of limited studio time it's on the clock and you've got to get it done um there was no studio time to pay for so we we were able to just you know languish (laughs) and um but uh so that process was very very different and very very interesting and i apologize for my father's landline that's okay not a problem (laughs) now shut um, the door all right, now let's talk a little bit about uh, the lineup on this. Who's playing on it? So, um, obviously, I'm I'm playing guitar and singing on everything and doing a lot of the background vocals. Um, Cheryl Prasker is playing the drums. Cheryl is an amazing drummer who these days lives uh, in Canada, where's where she's originally from. She's also in a, a great band called um, Runa, which is a Celtic group and uh carol ann solobello plays the bass uh carol ann has been my bandmate in a side project called no fuss and feathers for several years and uh prior to that she was also in a band called red molly um some of the background vocals are done by my producer who also mixed the record her name is katherine etzel She's a, a, a vocalist and she plays ukulele and she's also a percussionist and she did percussion sometimes on the record too. Um, she's in Brooklyn and she's in a band called Bobtown. Um, Catherine Miles did some background vocals. She's in a group called Miles and Mafali with her husband, J.J. Mafali. And they just put out a brand new record, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's called uh, Be Brave. So you should definitely look for that record because it's incredible. Um, I'm trying to run through the list without it having in front of me. <laughs> so I had several guitar players um, on the record, all women, of course. So I had uh, Kate McGuire, who's based in Baltimore. Uh, Annie McHugh is in Nashville. And Anne Klein is a Manhattan-based guitar player who also sometimes plays on Broadway. Um and we had Dear G. Childs on cello. We had 
several horn players. That was the big heavy lift. And um, I'm trying to think of all their names. I know there's Heather Ewer. Uh, oh, I'm going to go in front of me. You have the horn players in front of you. And I do not have their names. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, and my friend Allison Scola played clarinet. Um, and um, that's most of them. I probably have forgotten somebody. <laughs> Okay, well, that's all right. Now, uh, of course, once you get it uh, recorded, you have to get it out to radio and press, and you're working with Adam Dawson of Broken Jukebox Media. Tell me about that relationship. So I met Adam uh, probably about a year and a half ago at a uh, conference in um, Black Mountain, North Carolina, called the Southeast Regional Folk Alliance Conference. Um, Folk Alliance is a big international umbrella, and then there's little regionals all over the country, and this one is in the southeast. And um, Adam had worked with several friends of mine. Um, I knew who he was, and I knew his work because he was getting results. And so we, um, you know, at that particular time, we just shared shared a glass of bourbon and <laughs> and chatted. Um, and then it was about six, eight months later that I contacted him and, and we talked about him working the record. And his first question was, well, is it okay if I'm not a chick? <laughs> um, and I said, well, yeah, I'd be talking to you. If it wasn't okay, I decided to use all female talent. I, you know, I don't have to use women for every single okay. thing. But, but you know, I, I not that I wouldn't have hired a full woman radio promoter. I just, I, and, and I had before, but she wasn't doing it anymore. So, um, so Adam is one of the few men who actually got his hands on this project, and um, because he does, he does really great work, and he's really passionate about the records that he works with. He won't take it if he doesn't love it. Um, you know, which you know says a lot. Okay. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about um, the music industry. Um, one of the things I think uh, I find curious about musicians is how they define their success. What do you find as your definition of success in the industry? Wow. Um, you know, that has so many different quantifications I think for me really on a financial basis success is just a sustainable career can I do this without having to either get another job or go into debt you know can I um, can I keep making the record and paying for the record and touring the record and actually putting food on the table um which is, you know, again, the, the concern I had with a lot of female musicians, which is why I hired nothing with female musicians, so they could put food on the table. Um, and, you know, for me, as far as financial goes, that to me is successful, because it's so rare to actually even be able to do this as a living and make it pay enough that you're not begging for money or going to make it another way. Um, on on another level, really for me, success is just impact. If what I do brings something to somebody's life that means something to them, then I've succeeded. 
and the numbers don't matter so much to me as the as as the actual effect you know i get much more out of having somebody come to me after a show and tell me that they had a personal connection to one of my songs that it 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 meant something to them because of something that happened in their life or it changed their perspective on something or you know anything um that to me is the whole reason to create art Okay, well, that's fair enough. Now, um, let's talk about um, streaming a little bit. Uh, it seems that the consumer has really embraced this new method of um, listening to music as a way to consume music, and it's a double-edged sword. We have access now to this huge worldwide market of potential fans, but on the flip side, we're not getting compensated for the work that we put up on these platforms. Uh, in fact, it's gotten to the point where the consumer no longer looks at recorded music as a product anymore. It no longer has that status. It's now more of a service. They expect it on their phone. They expect it for free or whatever they're paying. And, you know, you got to give it to the consumer. I mean, for them, you know, for $10, $15 a month, they have access to pretty much everything that's been recorded in the last hundred years. And even myself, as someone who has purchased their music uh, on vinyl, A-track, cassette, CD, downloads, I'm getting tired of it. So for me, for that you know minimal amount of what I used to pay for a single CD, I now have access to that 100 years of music. But my question is, is how has this shift in perception by the consumer affected you as an artist oh well i mean it's it's affected us dramatically i mean because obviously we, we we really just don't sell cds anymore i mean it used to be that that was a big chunk of what you made it, at least live i mean the independent musician has never most of us sold a whole lot of records anywhere but our live shows um but we could sell a fair number at our live shows I could usually count on 20% of the audience probably buying something like the the math just kind of worked out that way Um, and that does not happen anymore because nobody has a player even people who would actually love to do it are like but my car didn't even come with a CD player I have nowhere to play this thing um and so, you know, because, you know, for the last couple of decades, that's where most people did a lot of their listening, was in their cars. And if your car doesn't have a way to play it, you're not going to buy a CD. And so it has definitely cut dramatically into the income because we just can't count on that anymore. Um, on the flip side, if a lot more people are actually finding your music, now, that's a whole other double-edged sword because there's so much out there that getting it found is a problem in and of itself. But, you know, if they find one and then they find your catalog and they listen to it, they are, therefore, there are more people more likely potentially to actually come to the show. So, it's, you know, and unfortunately, that's just how you have to look at it now as a marketing tool. Right. Well, you know, uh if you really kind of look at it, I mean, the the way that they've been compensating artists 
for the you know for their content on streaming services this is not a sustainable business model you know we can't continue to give our content to these streaming services without even the possibility of breaking even you know even if you had a hit you would not be able to generate as independent artists enough streams to cover the cost of going into the studio and recording that project. So there is a big problem here. You know, you look at the owner of Spotify and uh, this guy Elk, um, and they just came out uh, with the thing where he's worth $4 billion. He has more money than Paul McCartney. There's a problem here. This is a guy who has never written a song or created a track. And he's generated $4 billion in wealth without any creative content. Utilizing us as, you know, his generator of content. Mm -hmm. So we need to have a, a change in dynamics on how the uh, streaming services work. Now, one of the things that I've noticed, if you look at the timeline of the digital revolution, every five or six years, the company that we thought would control the inter- control the music industry forever gets replaced. LimeWire got replaced by Napster. Napster got replaced by iTunes. And of course, everyone thought, you know, oh my God, Apple is in the music industry. They're going to own it forever. Well, iTunes got replaced by Spotify. And everyone's saying, oh my God, Spotify will never get replaced. Well, that's not how the history is is you know showing us um, that something is going to come down the pike and replace it. The key is, will we have a seat at the table when that happens? Now, one of the things that I'm watching very closely are these streaming services that have been developed utilizing the blockchain or that technology the cryptocurrency uses to secure itself. Um You've got Audius, uh, Emanate, Audio Lux, and there's a whole bunch more that are coming almost daily. Uh, and one of the things about these streaming services that is unique is the fact that they are non, um, um, how can I put it, uh, nobody can own them. Uh, right, they're, they're not centralized. They're, yeah, they're decentralized. So, um, no one person or company can own these services. They're only owned by the users who utilize the service and the musicians who put up their content on these services. And because of that, they claim that they can pay up to 80% of the incoming revenue directly back to the artists themselves. Now, because it only takes 20% to run the network itself... What do you think of that as a potential future for streaming as we move forward? Uh, I mean, it's certainly an intriguing idea. And, um, you know, if it means that artists will be compensated and that people will move over and use a system that actually compensates artists, then why not? I'm totally for that. I, I just 
my fear, of course, is that we're, it's just another way to rip us off because everybody else before that has, so why not them? Um, because the big problem for us is that unlike SAG-AFTRA, we don't have that kind of organizational power. And so that's why streaming screwed us in the first place because we didn't have a way to fight back. Um, because, you know, legislatively it could have been set up. It was set up for terrestrial radio. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were rules around terrestrial radio that meant we had to get paid. And for some reason, when they set up, when streaming started, that didn't happen. And I think it didn't happen because we didn't have a seat at the table. And we don't have a seat at the table because we don't have an organizational structure that demands it. Right. Right. Well, you got a point. I just see it. I just see it a little bit, a little bit more difficult for corporations to try to take control of something that is so decentralized, like like the blockchain. Um, it's it's just a little more difficult. Um, right. And a lot yeah, it's of got potential. Oh yeah, and a lot of artists are are really behind this, like Katy Perry and Jason Derulo. A lot of the EDM artists, like Pusha T and Dead Mouse, and even some of the rap artists, like Nas and and so forth. They're all kind of behind these these new technologies. Um, one of which I find really interesting. Um, that may even take the place of the traditional record company for artists, you know, and even independent artists. Uh, there is a site called Royal.io, and there's a few others that have been developed that utilize the same business model. And what they allow you to do is create these non-fungible tokens, these NFTs, that represent a small portion of your streaming or your publishing royalties. And um, one of the rap artists, Nas, what he did is he took two songs from his last release and he made enough of these NFTs to cover one half of the streaming royalties on these two songs. Sold it to his fan base, was able to generate almost 600000 in upfront income. In addition, had almost 3,000 fans that had an economic interest in making sure his music is streamed. On top of that, as these NFTs are bought and sold on the open market, he gets a commission off of the resale of these NFTs in perpetuity forever. So it is still an income generator even after they're initially sold. So uh, it's like buying stock in a song. Right. What do you think of that as a potential for the future of the industry? It's it's certainly intriguing, and it, at least it empowers the artist to have some control over their, you know, their 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 intellectual property and the and the income that it potentially generates. You know, I mean, it's certainly better than what we're doing now, which is just giving it away. Well, you know, it's interesting because the way the internet and social media and 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 so forth is structured. It has given the artist a huge platform for them to generate a fan base and to keep them engaged. And I think as we move forward in the future, it's going to be a more 
artist fan kind of relationship that's going to drive the industry uh it's not going to be this this kind of artist far away you know up on the golden hill and the fans down below you know looking up in in awe you know they want to feel connected they want to feel like they're in touch with that they're on the level of these artists uh one of them the, you know the one artist that i can think of that's a genius at this is taylor swift she has created this fan base that literally feels like taylor's their best friend you know what right. i mean and you know she fosters that by picking out fans and inviting them to her, you know, home for listening parties and whatever the case may be. It doesn't have to be a lot of fans. It just has to feel like it could happen. You know what I mean? Right. That this is a possibility. And wow, what a great person she is. And she is a genius at creating the brand that is Taylor Swift. And I think that is where our future is in the industry. And the monetization is going to come as a result of that branding. In fact, I, I look at the branding as our new product. You create your brand and that brand now becomes your product that you attach these other revenue streams to, whether it's the NFTs for, you know, investing in a song or, you know, your, you know, the streaming on these, you know, these blockchain, you know, platforms, whatever the case may be. I think that branding is important. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and well, and it, it's it's funny because you know, it, what you're describing is that like big top tier artists are starting to invest in the sort of thing that people like me have always had to do, <laughs> which is to have an actual relationship with the people that listen to your music. Mm-hmm. You know, um, what I do is all about relationship. And, you know, I mean, most of the people that show up for my show, I know them. Um, you know, and, and I love that now, mind you. My numbers are way smaller than <laughs> Taylor Swift. Um, and, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, well, no. I mean, you know, it's, you know, I, I always tell artists, you know, it, when they say, you know, how do you become financially secure in the music industry? And if you really break it down, if you can get 1,000 fans to invest $100 a year in you as an artist, you have a career. Right. That's a hundred grand, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, and in a worldwide market like this, that's not unheard of. That's not beyond the realm of possibility. A thousand fans at a hundred dollars a year is not beyond that realm of possibility. Uh, so you know, it's it becomes you know just how do you get those thousand fans and of course social media makes it so much easier um, than it was years ago 
and the fact that we're all walking around with a video production studio in our pockets, you know, we carry it around with it everywhere we go, our cell phones, um, right. you know, which are shooting in 4K now, um, if not even more, 8K is soon on the horizon, um, which kind of brings me to my, my next subject here is that before the pandemic, this whole world of content and social media was important to us as independent artists. But when the pandemic hit, it got accelerated big time. Uh, artists started to scramble to get up on social media and create live streams so they can stay connected to their fan base, create an income stream, you know, through, um, you know, Venmo or, you know, their tip jar. And then when, you know, the months turned into years, the content started to become more personal. They, you know, started to show their uh, hobbies things they were doing on lockdown their families their their pets their barnyard animals their you know <laughs> their excursions and walks through the woods and you know whatever it may be and if you think about it that kind of raw authentic content is almost reminiscent of a reality show kind of mentality and if you really think about it the fan base that's out there has been inundated with this kind of content over the last 30 years, constantly, from the Kardashians to The Voice to the American Idol to you name it. That whole reality show thing is very prevalent. And so the fan base really gravitated towards this kind of content. Uh, I know my wife sits down every night. She takes out her phone, and at least half hour to 45 minutes, she's scrolling through his puppies, babies, and kittens. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's just, people love this short form, you know, content, this authenticity that, that connects them to the world, so to speak. Um, what are some of the things that you are doing that is helping you develop your brand, utilizing content and social media, and of course, getting the word out on this new release? Right. Well, um, you, you know, I mean, I know I definitely also started doing the streaming thing. I mean, I started shortly after the pandemic started, I basically started doing a weekly live stream, same time every Wednesday for a year and a half straight. I don't think I missed any. Um, in spite of the fact that I moved in the middle of that. So I ended up, I like live stream from the hotel room. I live streamed. <laughs> um, and it, what I got out of that was not just that I got to stay connected, but I had so many people, people I didn't even know previously who are now fans because they stumbled on it once and then just started coming back and started counting on it because they were so disconnected and so lonely and they were like, oh my God, your live stream just kind of like saved my life. You know, and so that was a big lesson for me on that one. And now I don't live stream every week anymore, although, you know, maybe I would start doing it again just because 
just you know why not um but I still do it occasionally and I and it and it really did teach me that people actually really want to be connected with you in that way and so I um yeah I definitely use a lot more personal information in a way than I ever used to you know I'll I'll share pictures from where I'm touring through this is where I am I just um I on the way out here I just drove from Ohio to West Virginia today and um, being originally from Maryland, I drove through Deep Creek Lake, and I hadn't been there in decades. So I stopped and I took a picture, and I and I shared that like I hadn't seen it in so long that I had to stop and take a look at it. Um, and so you know, it's 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 about making it not just this like, hey, look at this thing I have to sell you. You right. know, if, if that's if that's all you're doing, you will lose people. You know, um, they want to support you and they want to know what you're doing, but they also want to know about other pieces of your life. They start to, I think people feel a little used if all you ever post about is your, 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 your product and your shows. Oh, and I agree 100%. You can't continuously go sell, sell, sell. Uh, people want content. They want something that either delivers value to them or makes them smile or makes them feel connected um, with a shared experience. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that's important, and I think you definitely got got a handle on, on, on that. Uh, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. And um, we're going to give everyone out there a double shot from your new release. You guys are going to love this. You know what? Turn it up loud. The hell with the neighbors. We're going to have some fun tonight. <laughs> Bless the 
we get through this I will go to the city When we get through this I will ride on a train I'll be the crush Elbows on the sidewalk Push and pull I will dive right in When we get through
gonna rock the shade Gonna scream my name Make you shout now, honey Gonna make you whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Make 